Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, January 6, 2022. I'm John Pahortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Noah Rothman is out for uh, a well-deserved break. Uh, with us today is Washington Commentary columnist, fellow at AI, and author of the forthcoming book, The Right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, John. I'm doing well. Okay, so literally two minutes ago, President Biden finished his commemorative address about the events one year ago today on January 6th at the Capitol delivered the remarks in the statu- statuary hall uh, preceded by uh, Kamala Harris delivering remarks in which she appear- appears to believe that the preamble uh, to the uh, uh, Constitution of the United States mentions uh, prosperity rather than posterity. That was a, that was a particularly good um, solecism on her part. Uh, so let's, um, Matt, uh, what'd you think of the Biden speech? Uh, well, I think Biden supporters and, um, especially democratic partisans really like the speech. It was a very strong speech. It gave them, um, what they wanted. It was a defense. It was kind of a deconstruction of all the various, uh, false claims, lies that have been told about the 2020 election. Um, it pitted, it put Biden as the def- champion of democracy against the uh, Trumpist in a uh, uh, faction. Uh, he made some, you know, um, gestures toward unity saying, you know, I, I'm happy to work with Republicans if they, uh, you know, if they believe in the democratic system, uh, I think Biden supporters, uh, will be uh, pleased with it. I will say this, um, I don't. I think it was a signal that really Trump and January sixth is all Biden has left. <laughs> he seemed more energetic in this speech than he has in the entire year of his presidency. Uh, he was, he, you know, he got the volume up, uh, but he also seemed into it in a way that when he's discussing the collapse in Afghanistan the rising prices, the supply chain problems, the fact that he's totally uh, failed to control, uh, shut down the virus, which he promised to do, is lacking. So uh, to my big takeaway was, uh, this is it. It will be January 6th and Donald Trump all the way to the midterms. And I don't know how effective that will be when Trump himself is not on the ballot. I think it will be very effective if Trump is the nominee in 2024 for the GOP. But in the midterm, I, I don't think it's enough to save the Democrats this year. Well, let me Can you I, know, oh, go, go ahead. I Sorry. just want to comment on that because I noticed the same thing that he was like his voice was strong and he was. Uh, to the extent that he still can be uh, somewhat credible in delivering the speech. And I, it's because he doesn't have, in, in dealing with this issue, he doesn't have to defend any of his own actions. He doesn't have to sell anything. He doesn't have to explain any of his failures. Um, this can all be commentary about something extraneous to himself. Well, it's interesting because it's the first uh, speech that uh, he's given that actually goes to the reason that he was elected. If you sort of think about the last nine or 10 months, uh, he has been occupying a very peculiar piece of real estate, according to which, you know, a, a guy whose party 
you know, with the two parties at absolute parity uh, in the United States Congress uh, is walking around acting as though he has an LBJ or FDR style majority um, uh, or that the, uh, that the country's electoral choices in 2020 gave him the freedom to think uh, or the responsibility to reconstruct American society with these gigantic pieces of transformative legislation. And that was always a bad fit because it was a fantasy here. He has extended out the idea that his presidency was supposed to be a return to normalcy. That was the fundamental reason he ran. He wanted to restore decency to our government and restore a sense of normality to American political life. And, um, and so here he is two weeks shy of his, of the anniversary of his inauguration, being able to take that very limited promise and make it the centerpiece of his presidency again, even though he didn't know that he was going to be facing down uh, an effort to, to uh, delegitimize or overturn his presidency when he was running on this message of a return to normality. But fundamentally, he's saying, this is not the way we do things in America. Here's what's happened. Here's, you know, uh, and, and the interesting thing, I think, is that um, he, he was compelled by circumstance not to go to the places that most liberal pundits have been going to now over the last three or four months, which is to say, our system is uniquely a threat as never before. You know, if we don't fix everything right now, everything is going to come crashing down. He went with the system held. He went, the logic of this speech is the system held. Donald Trump would have been happy with any result that could have led him back into the White House but uh, and he said this, Republicans and Democrats stayed here in the Capitol and finished their work on January 6th. The system held American democracy was stronger than this assault against it. But if you're reading The Atlantic and, uh, you know, various other the bulwark and various other places, I think pretty much the idea is that we have no reason to believe that democracy held. We have no reason to have any confidence that uh, that what what happened here rather incompetently on January 6, 2021 can't be done more competently later if necessary. And that we are, you know, we are, we are, you know, uh, on the we are sort of on the precipice of a descent into a, a, an anti-democratic abyss. That was not the theme of the speech. But that but it, but strangely, that put his theme in stark contrast to the to Kamala Harris's briefer and really not at all compelling remarks. I was joking to you guys on the on the text chain that about five minutes in, I felt like I was watching one of those canned videos you're forced to watch before jury duty. Like there's something about the way she, she presents herself. that's just not at all charismatic or authentic. But her message was quite the opposite. It was the we are teetering on the brink. This is as bad as Pearl. We, you know, this is like Pearl Harbor. It's like 9-11. We have an important choice to make. That choice is to federalize our election process by passing this bill that's that's now pending in the Senate. She took the partisan route. They obviously outsourced that to her so that he didn't have to do that. But it did lead to a kind of contradictory messaging. If you look at what she said compared to what he said, and I, I will say I agree about the speech. I think it was pretty strong. I liked seeing angry Biden, self-righteous as he is in his anger. It was actually nice to hear him defending law enforcement, talking about what they suffered and saying this is wrong, talking about how our democracy is strong and resilient and how we can move on from this. That was all nice because, again, it contrasts to a lot of the 
particularly the, the, the use of the word equal and equality, which I kept hearing over and over in today's speech, a word that has entirely disappeared from the Biden administration's discussion of this country, because all I've heard for the last several months is equity, equity, equity. So there was a lot of like returning to, to, to values and standards that I was very glad as a more conservative leading person to hear him say. But it, I don't think his message and her message were on the same page. Right. Well, it doesn't matter what she says. And in any case, that bill, th- those bills aren't going to pass. So um, it was such it, an effective kind of- reading of the preamble, John. <laughs> she paused after every other word. I was finishing her sentences. And then, and then got, I know that. And then, and then got she the got the word, word wrong. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I mean, it, it, she is just awful at this. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, I tend to be more generous to politicians in these circumstances uh, because you don't know what it's like. And, you know, you think that they don't connect with people. But, you know, somebody who won statewide office in California shouldn't be dismissed so readily and all of that. But my God, is she bad at this? Maybe they put her up there because to make Biden look good by contrast. I, I don't even... I don't even well, know. Um, I do think this ties into his interview before the holiday break, where he was asked, are you going to run again in 2024? And he gave a very subtle answer where he said, I'm planning to, there is the exception of my health. So he put that out there. But then when I think it was David Moore of ABC was conducting the interview, he said, well, what if Trump runs? And Biden then goes, oh, uh, Definitely. Uh, that makes it far more likely. You got that same message from this speech. He's not about, uh, at the end of the day, he's about stopping Trump. That's kind of period, period. The re- so period. Would, right. That's the reason. 2020 Biden stop Trump. 2024 he'll stop. Yeah. Trump. And so, and so that's, and this, the whole speech was about Trump. That's all it was. And uh, it was a partisan speech. You know, I mean, it was, it was direct and, and Republicans have a lot on their uh, to shoulder here, a lot of the responsibility to shoulder for what happened on January 6th. Um, but it wasn't a kind of uh, abstract, you know, moment of solemnity. Let's uh, this you reassert our national unity. It was a very specific, detailed attack on Trump. But it get to this point, which is at the end of the day, Biden is not there to be LBJ or FDR. Um, it's a mistake on his part to think so. At the end of the day, he's there to block Donald Trump from occupying the White House. And and by the way, that is a coherent, comprehensible, and achievable aim. I mean, that's the bizarre thing about the fact that he got seduced by this John Meacham, Doris Kearns Goodwin idea that he could transmute himself into LBJ because Donald Trump acted like a psychotic and lost those two seats in uh, Senate seats in Georgia for the Republicans. Uh, otherwise, no such logical thought process could have afflicted even Biden that he could be LBJ without having you know nominal control of the Senate. But um, if he can focus his mission on I came into power because Donald Trump had to be stopped and I was the best option to do that out of the field because all these other people were crazy and wanted to be LBJ plus FDR plus 
Fidel Castro. Yeah, Eugene Debs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, the, yeah. Um, so Dr. Yeah. Jill as Ava Perone. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. No. So. So. But. But. Yeah. Literally saying I'm running for re-election in 2024 because he's not going anywhere, and I am the best person right now. I'm the only person in America who can prevent this from happening. Again, a coherent message, particularly if the Democratic Party, the only thing that they end up agreeing on is that Trump is the worst thing that ever happened to America. Because they're not, they're, they're, a lot of them aren't agreeing on a lot of different stuff. And, and a lot of these divisions are going to get more and more stark over the next couple of years, I think, in, in this sense, which is that rational, non-ideological politicians are, are being asked in the Democratic Party a little like rational, non-ideological Republicans, uh, members of the Republican Party were during during Trump's time. They are being asked to shoulder, defend, and advocate for policies that A, they don't really agree with, and B, that I think they think are ruinous and suicidal for them to take on. I mean, we talked yesterday a lot about the uh, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg essentially deciding he's going to decriminalize crime in Manhattan and not and do whatever he can to not seek jail sentences for people who are convicted of felonies or to call the felonies misdemeanors or something like that. There is not a lot that is going to bind, uh, you know, like a sensible Midwestern Democrat, even a progressive Democrat with that idea, which has a lot of juice behind it. Um, they don't want to defend it. They, they're not going to want to have that on their shoulders. But if they could just unite behind the idea that, you know, the guy who led to January 6th has to be stopped again, you know, as a, as a sort of consensus view of the party, it's not, it's not bad. Can I just say a word about the invocation by both Harris and Biden of, about political violence, the message about political violence? That's one that I did that did kind of get me annoyed and not because I disagree with it. I, I, I think all of us here have on multiple occasions condemned the use of political violence. It's wrong. No matter who's doing it against, it's just, it's not the way our system's meant to operate. But that was the part that rang the most hollow listening to that, you know, listening to him defend police officers and talk about how political violence is, is terrible. It's terrible. There was a moment where he could have signaled to half of this country who, who votes Republican. Yes, we have seen a lot of violence and upheaval over the past several years. Like he didn't even have to say Black Lives yeah. Matter. He didn't have to say any of that. But he could have said like to all those people who lived in cities and in parts of the country that saw riots and looting and, you know, chaos, you know, over that summer, he could have signaled that's also political violence because that is exactly what it was. Not that it's comparable to what happened on January 6th. I'm not trying to draw a comparison in that sense. But what I'm saying is he had a couple of opportunities to be a little less partisan, a little more, a little less divisive. Obviously, that wasn't their intention. And, and I agree that with, with your guys' overall assessment of the speech, but there were a few missed opportunities there that would have been no-brainers, I think, if he wanted to be a, put, put out a few olive branches. Well, I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed his attack on Stacey Abrams. I mean, well, that's what he I was... did say. He did say, "You can't love your country only when you win. You can't obey the law only when it is convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies." The idea that somebody was wrongly and illegitimately elected uh, in the United States, despite uh, the fifty thousand vote margin uh, in a statewide election, um, 
in you know in during the Trump presidency, he was not he did not inaugurate that idea. Stacey Abrams inaugurated that idea, acted as though she had won legitimately won an election that she lost. And so um, I'm just going to take, you know, the the fact that you have to trust the tale and not the teller and think that uh, unconsciously Biden and his speechwriters were actually attacking Stacey Abrams. No, I'm glad our conversation is taking this turn because we, we started it by sort of praising the speech sort of context free. Uh, but in the context of what Democrats have been up to, um, it is it is a. a completely contradictory on on the two biggest points which are both uh accepting political violence and questioning elections um these are these have been really kind of mainstays of of uh you know the the the, the democratic mo for the for the past at least two years i mean you're talking about Stacey abrams there's also uh uh the, the the Trump Russia conspiracy. I mean, there's you know, and um, so yeah, we're happy to see any any leaders condemn political violence and you know condemn the 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 um, sort of insulting our system and questioning its legitimacy. This is a snapshot. This is a this is a isolated, you know, uh, you know non-fungible token of a moment here this is the 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 rest of the the rest of the biden and democratic project doesn't really doesn't really uh track with this sentiment kamala harris let's recall during black lives matter summer posted on social media encouraging people to donate to bail funds for rioters who had been arrested that should not be forgotten and she never withdrew that tweet she never said oh wow maybe i overreacted and you know didn't realize it no that is exactly what a good chunk of the Democratic Party believes to have been legitimate at that time, because it was their cause. I think that's the problem for the Democrats and for Biden is, you know, I mean, to the, to this point of why, why is Biden there to stop Trump? Why would Biden run in 2024 to stop Trump? Well, what's he going to do for the other 364 days of the year? Right. <laughs> and, you know, January 6th comes around once a year and he's had, we now have 10 months before this election. And by the time we get to this election, January 6th will be in the background. And the types of uh, hypocrisies that Abe mentions, they're going to be in the foreground. The consequences of the Manhattan DA's policy that you mentioned, John, that will be in the minds of a lot of voters and in a lot of TV ads. You know, Um, you already see the brewing revolt over education. You already see kind of the, I, I mean, I see it in my part of deep blue suburban Virginia, the revolt over the COVID just absurdities, right. And the testing and the quarantines when everyone is getting it, um, that's going to build. And, the, and, and Trump of course is in this weird position where if this speech, if Biden had given the speech on January 6th, 2020, Trump would be live tweeting, right. And you'd have his running commentary and everything. And instead, Trump is out of the picture. He'll probably release an angry statement over email, but he's not at the forefront of, of people's minds anymore. And I don't even think January 6th, is, as awful as it was, occupies a, lar- a, a lot of space in the minds of your median American voter. I mean, it certainly occupies a lot of space in the media. 
Um, but I think most people are going around their day and they think that was terrible. It was awful. I'm happy he's gone. I don't want him to run again. Over 60%, I think, in the most recent poll of the public says we don't want Trump to run again. But man, Biden is really bad at his job. That's what they're thinking. Well, look, that that ultimately elections are referenda. Re-elections are referenda on the incumbent unless... As Unless they can Barack make it a choice. Obama pulled it out. Right. Yeah, they can make it a choice. Yeah. Or and make some make it sort of a referendum on the challenger, which is very hard to do, but can happen under some circumstances. And Trump will be a target rich atmosphere for that in a way that almost nobody, if he runs and, and secures the nomination, in a way which no one else has ever been before. I mean, that is to say, uh twice forty-six percent of the country voted for him. Uh and you know, he got more votes the second time in absolute numbers. He got more votes the second time than he did the first time, but his percentage of the vote did improved by, I don't know, half a percent, maybe even a little less. Uh, he, he's already had two bites at this apple. And, and, um, and that's why I say, I think that the, we got to keep this guy out of office message, particularly if Democrats have nothing else to run on. Is a pretty uniting, and B has re, you have reason to believe uh, this is why it would be a terrible mistake for the Republicans to choose Trump as their nominee in twenty twenty four because uh, uh, you know a, a floor uh, you know a floor mopper you know at a Dillard's in Oklahoma could just run against Biden. You know, I mean, anybody can run against Biden. Trump is going to have trouble running against Biden in a weird way because because Biden can turn almost everything that he'll say about Biden onto Trump. What did you do? How did you how did you fix COVID, for example? Like, you know, all Trump can say is I had a good economy and you have a bad economy. But, you know, he doesn't there's no juice behind Trump's efforts to attack Biden philosophically on on his betrayal of capitalism or, you know, or, or, or deficit spending or anything like that. Trump doesn't care about any of that. It's not of interest to him. You know, it's a bit, what gives him his juices, his personal, I'm more proper and his personal wounds and all that. And so uh, you're right that under any conventional circumstances, Biden shouldn't run again, unless something really shocking happens in the next 18 to 24 months to turn everything around obviously it did turn around on ronald reagan for example so it can turn around although i just don't think these policies he's pursuing offer any hope whatsoever for any kind of turnaround because they there's nothing built into them that is intended to cure the present crisis or to solve it or resolve it it is sort of deepening it you know um inadvertently um but, you know, it, it, there is a kind of weird tragedy. We're going to have yet another race. We could face ourselves yet another race between, you know, uh, a, a seemingly senile idiot and a psychotic 77-year-old. And, and, you know, it's not much of a choice. But if you have to choose between somebody who's senile and somebody who's psychotic, you probably go with the senile person. Uh, with Noah absent, my internal Noah feels obligated to raise a point that I think uh, he would like raised in objection. Uh, what of the Axios poll that he cited a few days ago, um, citing that uh, voters overwhelmingly don't want to hear about Trump anymore? Um, right. How does that conflict 
well, that fit, well, that the, fits the with the achievable plan of 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 keeping keeping Trump at bay. Well, no, but that that fits with Matt's, you know, the fact that 60 percent of the public says they don't want him to run again. That means there's 60 percent now in the end. Those people still are if Biden is they still are going to have to affirmatively choose the other person and not say, well, I can't vote for that guy. You know, if Alvin Bragg is the Democratic nominee, that's the Manhattan DA in 2024. A lot of people would vote for Trump in those numbers who wouldn't vote for Trump. Otherwise, he's not going to be. But you you, you see my my point, or Harris. I mean, I mean, that's the that's the real kind of problem for the Democrats is Harris. And, you know, how did Trump squeak out that electoral college victory in 2016? He ran against a, an unlikable Democratic woman. Mm-hmm. And you know what? <laughs> He's thinking there in Mar-a-Lago. Hey, I could do that again, which she, is, again, why Biden yeah. sends, sends that warning flare. Oh, oh, oh no. If he's going to run, I, I then uh, that does incentivize me to, to run for re-election. But I, but I, I agree with John. Uh, you know, the fact that 60 percent don't want to hear about Trump is bad for Trump. Now, it's also bad for the Democrats when Trump isn't on the ballot, because this is right. this is my point, is that you can't. Yeah. You're going to base the your Democratic campaigns in the midterm on January 6th and Donald Trump. And we can't let the Republican candidates win in Georgia and uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, because then they're going to launch this very complicated plot in order to install Trump, despite whatever the voters say two years from now, under circumstances that we don't, we can't conceive at the moment. That's not going to work. It's all a 2024 strategy. It's not a 2022 strategy. But that's where I think there were some hints of, of that strategy going forward. And you certainly see it among the Democratic pundit class. Right. And that's an effort to brand all of the Republican Party as a sort of latent terrorist organization that secretly, even if they claim they oppose Trump, really want to do exactly. They would have loved to have seen an insurrectionary coup, you know, disrupt the election. Now, they're they're pretending now because it failed that they don't really want that. But there is a pretty committed faction of the left that believes that to be the case about their opponents on the other side of the aisle. That's pretty pernicious. But I think it speaks to and Matt. I know you wrote about this this um, this voting act that actually we could get bipartisan support for that McConnell and others have signaled they're ready to pass that the Democrats have absolutely said no way they're doing the same thing they did with the build back, build back better, which is we cannot compromise with these people. They they're a threat to democracy. We must ram through legislation that we believe to be better. Uh, but that this legislation that could get bipartisan support would actually fix the problems that right now we're all discussing as having been a problem in the last election. No, literally, right. It is a fix for the possibility of some kind of an intrusion on the orderly transfer of power and the way the Electoral College votes are accepted and counted. This one act that was put into place the last time there was a a terrible controversy in 1876 over how the presidency, uh, how how it was that the presidency went to... um, Hayes, I guess it went to Hayes over Tilden, right? And so, and 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 Tilden really had won the election, and there was just all this maneuvering, uh, you know, with the with, with the states, and so they created this incredibly lumbering piece of legislation that doesn't actually, as we have now seen, doesn't precisely fix the problem because the theoretical scheme that John Eastman and others had come up with or had thought through 
required way too many moving pieces to fall into place for it to work. But this is the one dystopian warning that I think you can't just simply dismiss, which is that once you've seen how it's screwed up, if you're competent enough, and I don't actually think that people are competent enough to pull this off, but theoretically, you can correct for the mistakes that were made in 2020 the next time you want to try. Having having had the example of what you need to line up beforehand, how you need to get it ready, you know, who you need to have sitting in a hotel room somewhere to come down with an alternate slate of elector, whatever, however you want to slice it. And you could do it and you just close the loopholes or sort of revise the Electoral Count Act and you can fix it. And of course, they don't really want to fix it because they want to you they want this arrow in their quiver or they want this federalization of election law because they think it's going to enshrine their advantage, which they think is fair because they think Republicans have an unfair advantage because as Jedediah Purdy said in the New York Times earlier this week, we're not really a democracy because, you know, everything in the country is not one man, one vote, and therefore we're not really a democracy. And that then tends to, for for reasons of the present moment, favor Republicans who tend to dominate in smaller states and therefore control state legislatures in smaller states and get two senators in smaller states and all of that. That would not be the case otherwise. And so therefore, anything you can do to mitigate that present advantage, which of course could entirely shift a generation from now, you know, for 40 years, Democrats had a structural advantage in the electoral college that they then lost. It's not like they can't get it back, you know? um, So uh, they're in charge of the government. That's what's so bizarre about a a lot of this democracy is done rhetoric. They're in charge. (laughs) Maybe that explains why they're saying democracy is, is doomed or or, or in under threat is they're right. in charge and they, yet they can't actually realize their unattainable goals. Yeah, that is a that is a we are in a fascinating situation in which a guy gets eighty one million votes and we're told that you know it's too hard to vote in the United States when a hundred and fifty five million people voted in twenty in the twenty twenty election. No, but that was another one of those weird contradictions in Biden's remarks. He praised Americans. He's like, more of you than ever before voted. And then, then you know, two beats later or earlier, he talked about voter suppression. <laughs> it just, it doesn't scan. It doesn't, it doesn't scan. But you know what scans ExpressVPN? You want to know why it scans? Because you need ExpressVPN to protect you from hackers uh, who can look on, in on you very easily Uh without having the encrypted tunnel that ExpressVPN creates between your device and the internet and prevents your online activity being seen by anyone. Look, it's not just hackers. Your internet service provider knows every single website you visit and they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. So I, like many people, use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on my phone. It works on my laptop. You can even It even works on a router right at the source. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected, even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is just as easy as closing your bathroom door and keeping yourself minimally secure simply by not allowing people to look in on you. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by Mashable, The Verge, and countless others. 
So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary today. Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Uh, and you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to go right here to talk to you also about Headspace, our second advertiser. You know how we all say fine when we don't mean it? Fine isn't an emotion. How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you really felt is anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace is a scientifically proven app that helps you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study proved in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress or anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Once you download the app and try their mindfulness routines, it takes just a few minutes a day to change your relationship with stress and anxiety and start feeling better from waking up happier to getting your mind ready for bed. You can make 2022 the year you incorporate mindfulness into your daily life and change your mental health for the better. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash commentary and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash commentary today, headspace.com slash commentary. Now let's talk about the Republicans in, in January 6th. I think, uh, you know, it's a year. Um, I think all of us here, uh, Matt. You know, you texted me yesterday and said January sixth was the worst, the worst day in America since since nine eleven. Um, so you are sort of in a weird way. You're sort of with Kamala Harris, right? She said December seventh, nineteen forty one, September eleventh, two thousand one, January sixth, twenty twenty one, and you know, I'm inclined. I'm pretty much there. So explain to me why it is that I'm already in, uh, that that I find the way uh, that that January sixth is talked about by people with whom I nominally agree. Uh, you know, it was a disgraceful event. I thought that Trump should have been impeached and convicted for it, and convicted precisely so he could not run again. Um, he should be denied. The only way that he could really be denied the possibility of running again would be to convict him, and that Republicans in the Senate were incredibly short-sighted not to bite the bullet and go for this measure it, it, simply for their the political future of their own party not only that it would have been the right thing to do because he did foment some kind of a riot i don't really know if the word insurrection is right insurrection would really go more to what was going on behind the scenes in a, a, not on the day but what helped lead up to the day anyway but I find myself I find myself very annoyed by the way this is talked about and written about. Am I? Are you there? I, I'm. I, some, I, some sometimes when uh, uh, I hear rhetoric that seems very self indulgent or self absorbed and self congratulatory uh, regarding the events of the day, I kind of get annoyed. I think what separates um, the first two dates Vice President Harris mentioned. December 7th, September 11th from January 6th is that the first two were external attacks. The January 6th came from within and it also, it wasn't, um, it wasn't say like the Oklahoma city bombing where it, that was a, you know, far right terrorist blew up the, the federal building. The, the, what happened on January 6th was, connected to the 
sitting president who is the head as the sitting president, you are the head of one of America's two major political parties. And so it had the character of a partisan event. Um, even though many Republicans are, were at the time, they've since reconned uh, their views, uh, but at the time they were horrified at what was happening um, and, and shocked and disgusted. And Lindsey Graham, you know, saying at the end of the day, late at night, when Congress reassembles, saying, count me out, right? That's how many Republicans felt. It still was and it coming from the sitting president who was the head of the Republican Party. That's what makes it weird and unique. And also, I think, makes it dis- uncomfortable for people who are on the right side of the political aisle to talk about because the more you hear about it you know it's never it's never nice it's never comfortable to hear about uh, about something that your side did wrong now as you've pointed out many times john never do the democrats in power talk about what the left did in 2020 right and so then immediately you get into the whataboutism rhetoric which is you know, 98% of what passes for political debate in our country. Um, but I think that's the source of, of what makes, uh, makes us some uncomfortable um, by, by some of the coverage. Well, I mean, John, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you regarding how it's talked about by, by the people you're referring to. And I, and I think from my perspective, what gets me is that they're not actually talking about it as a terrible day. They're talking about it as a usable day as a kind of gift. And I think transparently so. Um, yeah, on the surface, it's all about how, how terrible it is. Um, but um, beneath the surface, it is, there's a savoring quality here um, that, that cannot be missed. And, and I find that um, despicable in its cynicism. Well, okay. So here's the thing though. Um. Adam uh, Kinzinger, the congressman from Illinois uh, who voted uh, to impeach and is and joined Lynn Cheney, uh, excuse me, Liz Cheney on the um, on the January sixth uh, committee when uh, Republicans refused to, uh, formally to join and make it a bipartisan effort. Uh, his district has essentially been gerrymandered out of existence and he has really no, it's really clear he has no future in the Republican party because he has become an anti-Trump activist in this respect. So um, I think he's a very impressive guy. He's a very interesting, intelligent person, but he tweeted something yesterday that made me very uncomfortable in precisely this manner. And it's not, it's got nothing to do with, his view of how dangerous January 6th was and how it needs to be prevented and how Congress needs to investigate it, all that. He said this, I will continue to say what few others in my party have the courage to say as we near the anniversary of January 6th, we must reflect on the failures that led to that day. It's time for leaders to lead. So he just issued a tweet praising his own courage. Now, aesthetically that just that's gross like you're not you know it's like you know it's like the classic thing about the hero right the hero is the guy when you say my god why did you jump off the 14th street bridge into the freezing river when the when the when the plane went into the potomac 
and uh, that the that guy Lenny Skutnik says, "I don't know. I just it saw people in the water and I jumped in to help." You know, you don't. He didn't say, "Well, I mean, I just, I mean, I had the courage to do things that other people didn't do." Right? I mean, and so. I don't mean to, I really do admire Adam Kinzinger. And I think this was a, this was just sort of a rhetorical mistake, but there's something, there's a burr in my, you know, be in my bonnet or burn my saddle about the self-congratulatory nature of the people who think that this is the worst thing that ever happened. And the problem is I sort of also think it's the worst thing that ever happened. So I, I, I'm in a weird position here, but uh, I think there was a little something of that in Biden's speech today too. When he said, I did not seek this fight, but uh, nor will I shirk from it. First of all, he did seek this fight, uh, which may which may not even I, I'm not even knocking him for it. But his campaign rhetoric that pre obviously predated uh, January 6th was about the the sort of evil author, authoritarian uh, inclinations of, of Trump. So you can't say he didn't seek this fight. This is precisely the fight he, he sought. Trump handed him this sort of, you know, like, you know, this prime example that that he could he could then continue to talk about. I do think it was funny. Uh, it was, you know, I remember Obama's speech during the DNC where he said, you know, if you reelect Trump in 2020, democracy is over. And but the country didn't reelect Trump. Simply it elected Biden. And now I'm hearing from Biden, democracy still might be over. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm waiting. How do I save democracy? And I know that it's not by passing HR1 and the John Lewis law. That is not going to save democracy. One well, is packing going to, the court or packing well, the Supreme well, Court. Well, I mean, to Biden's credit, stuff, yeah. the, that's like yeah, totally he off that the table, again. right? What's yeah. on the table are these two bills. That's what they, they, they seem, that's the argument. This is how we're, we're going to save democracy is by federalizing the elections and instant, you know, getting rid of voter ID and getting, allowing the felon vote and um, uh, having uh, mail-in ballots everywhere. That's how we're going to save the elect uh, democracy or by reinstituting preclearance, you know, this kind of an- this antiquated mechanism by which the justice department had to approve all the voting law changes in the Southern Jim Crow states, which the Supreme Court said, and rightly, Chief Justice Roberts said in 2013, guys, you know, it's a different country. We don't need this anymore. Um, but that's what the John Lewis law would do is reassert the federal government's control. So I guess from the Democratic perspective, if you have the John Lewis law, then the voting bills that were enacted in Georgia and Texas would have to be approved by the federal government. Right. And they could say, no, we don't you can't do that, that because that's discriminatory. But even that is kind of this Rube Goldberg contraption that you have to get to somehow save democracy in 2024. And the other argument is oh, the only way to save democracy is by passing Build Back Better. This is what I hear from David Brooks. And uh, but then but that means that the person who's ruined American democracy is Joe Manchin. <laughs> I don't quite understand it. Why? It, you know. So I would just like to know, how do we save American democracy? No one has told me. And, it, and I think for a lot of voters, if they start internalizing the idea that, oh, well, when the Democrats talk about saving democracy, all they mean is Democrats have to win elections. They're just going to throw up their hands. And, I mean, that's just part. They're already there. A lot of them are already there. I right. think that's a lot of moderates yeah. are. 
Well, I, I think going back to stuff we talked about earlier in the week, and we talked about this uh, upcoming piece that that Abe has written uh, about the nature of the revolution of 2020 uh, and and how um, how it's reached its tentacles uh, into private places and private relations between employers and employees and corporations and and the people who work for them the re-education stuff and all of that and um <clears throat> that's also a threat to democracy like in a, in a weird way we have this kind of intrusion into the personal mind spaces of americans uh, in which they are being told after a century of 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 sort of labor law that uh, they are obliged that that was intended to basically limit the reach of the employer into the life of the employee uh, that they must act or think in certain ways or be subject to some form of internal discipline social ostracism uh, whatever and their only remedy is going to be at the ballot box. And the idea that, uh, you know, this is where all of this stuff, there's an X factor involved in discussing 22 and 2024 that we saw in 2021 in Virginia, which is people are going to be spurred by issues and behaviors and new issue sets that are going to take the pundit class and the people who sort of frame our American political discussions entirely by surprise, uh, you know, because uh, we're, we're used to the old culture wars. We're, we're sort of, we, you know, a lot of that is very, you know, it's like Ross Douthat's point about um, uh, what's the word that I'm now losing decadence, right? That somehow we're a decadent society because we just keep repeating the same stuff over and over. Like we're making sequels instead of making new movies and all of this. Well, I mean, you know, our major, the major social fault lines, uh, culture war issue since for the last 50 years has been abortion. We're going to get another go go at it when the Supreme Court issues its ruling uh, in the abortion case in June. But these are not the issues that are pushing people's buttons anymore. The old issues are not put. There are new issues that are pushing people's buttons. The schooling issues, the COVID authoritarian issues, and this Black Lives Matter re-education camp system stuff. And I don't know, it could be an onslaught that really goes under the name of preserving our democracy. But of course, the people who say that our democracy is at risk don't think that that's they they're all they're they're they've either all made their peace with it or they're kowtowing to it or whatever and they could just be hit by a tidal wave in relation to this because they are unprepared for the fact that people are finding this stuff chilling and totalitarian christine this is a big you know this i mean you know so we always focus on the teachers unions but i i it's not that's just the tip of the iceberg no it's much i i, I noticed that both harris and biden uh talked about uh history you know they're talking about the big lie obviously which which is fine there was a big lie that trump trump has been promoting but this this she mentioned disinformation or misinformation i can't remember which one but the democrats in particular have been starting a uh a, a an argument that I think is going to long term be 
actually great political fodder for the for the right, but uh, is is really concerning if you care about free expression and, and free speech. And that's the uh, federal government's role in controlling information: who hears what, who says what, where. Uh, this has been ongoing. And and let's recall: look, 2016 when Trump won. Uh, there were a lot of Democratic politicians who said he was illegitimately elected, including Joe Biden. Joe Biden did say that. There's video of him saying he thought he was an illegitimate president. Um, so that kind of rhetoric is part of the political process. So that this idea that that le- the legitimacy talk is no longer is now off the table is wrong. But the misinformation disinformation effort is really being driven by the left. Uh, it's it's um, very harmful to free speech. It, we're seeing it both in schools and in the in, in the private sector world. Uh, at, but all under this ban of equity, inclusion, diversity, but it's it's a thread. And, and the idea that that private companies and, and platforms, particularly the big tech platforms, should be monitored by the federal government, since the federal government right now is in the hands of the Democrats, uh, to prevent lies and misinformation from spreading, should worry every American, whether they're on the right or the left. Because if you give that power to the federal government, to control speech, it that power is not going to be rescinded when a Republican comes into office. So that there's a lot of short-term thinking about this stuff, but I think that's going to be another issue in the next presidential election is who's allowed a platform to say whatever they want? What kind of conspiracy theories are considered dangerous? How do we measure people's ability to process this information? That stuff is important too. And I don't see the Republicans have not been really good on this or consistent on this. And the Democrats are organizing, they're putting money behind these projects. This is long term, like the critical race theory stuff. They have some of these activist groups in particular are taking a long view on this and conservatives need to wake up and not just complain, but actually think about ways to combat that and protect free speech. And I think that's where you get to the point here that it would be so uh, retrogressive and, and useless if Trump ends up the nominee in 2024. Because we are moving in a, we are moving to a different place here. History is speeding up uh, in the United States, let's say, or the ways in which we are confronting a lot of the, uh, the the fruition of a lot of ideas that have been bubbling up for two generations that are now being sort of put into practice that really do have to be the subject of our future elections, if we are actually to come to some kind of a social consensus on what kind of country we should be and whether we are basically going to be a country that believes in equality of opportunity or equality of result. And he is, he is just not equipped to be that person. You know, he also wants to find demons abroad to destroy, right? I mean, he wants to say it's, uh, you know, it's immigrants or it's the Chinese or it's who, you know, we need to sort of go at our enemies and, and all of that. And that the problem is that the fight is interior now, and it is a fight about the very definition of the United States. And that's not, you know, if we don't have a border, we don't have a country. It is, is it going to be okay for the sort of American elite to believe that it can control the thought processes of the American rank and file person. And uh, he can't, that's too abstract for him and he doesn't care about it. No, he can't. So, he loves he loves a fight as long as the people are fighting for him. I mean, we know this right. from some of the investigations of January 6th commission. He was watching on TV going, look at how much they love me. They're fighting yeah. for me out there. I mean, he doesn't he loves a fight. He this is the yeah. he's absolutely the worst person to put in charge in a few years. I would just say, though, I mean, in a 
argument over national identity as you frame it, uh, the left loses. I mean, that right. was that, that was the res- that came out of last year's elections in yes. Virginia and New Jersey, yes. or in Nassau County. You know, I mean, across yeah. the country. I mean, yeah. as that's what's going to come out. I'm. I mean, I'm laying my cards on the table here. I'm pretty certain it's going to come out in the midterm as right. well. I mean, there's yeah. going to be some Republican idiots who were nominated uh, that are going to make gaffes that will probably doom their yeah. campaigns. But I mean, things are looking pretty good for the Republican Party as we right. start the new year. Right. So if you frame it that way, um, I think the left is at a disadvantage electorally. And, 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 and you know, even Trump, remember, Trump was on a theme uh, before he got COVID and crashed. Uh, which was precisely as you describe yeah. it, John. He was saying this is a fight over whether America stands for the things that we were taught America yeah. stands for. Remember his national park of statues? I wanted yeah. the park. You know, Biden yeah. canceled the park. I thought the yeah. park's a great idea. Take the sta- <laughs> kids to see the statues of yeah. the people. It was all sorts of Americans, um, every race and uh, creed. Yeah. You know, I wanted the park. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra was going to yeah. be there. Jackie Robinson. It was a great way to introduce your kids to American history, you know. And um, of course, it'd all be lefties who carved the statues. Yeah. You'd wind up like with the statue of Martin Luther King at his memorial, which is kind of this. You know, I think it was literally sculpted by a Maoist. But in any case, yeah. um, his Rushmore speech over yeah. last summer again, he framed it exactly this way: is it sixteen nineteen or is it seventeen seventy six? And that I think actually was a helpful message. But which then immediately ran into his COVID diagnosis and the first presidential debate and everything. Just I think that it was a helpful message, but he was not a good messenger for it because no, no, he's not because he doesn't. Because everybody knows he doesn't viscerally dislike him. I mean, that's that's, well, there's that, and he doesn't mean it. He is his solipsism is the central fact of his life and his political life, and it's like what what what. What shines the light from behind his eyes? Is it, oh my God, we have to stop these people from taking over our country? Or is it, you know... I want to see myself on Mount Rushmore. That tweet. What, yeah, what did yeah. Don Lemon say about me last yeah, night? Exactly. I mean, that's what, so that, that's, what so that's, why, that's why I say he's uniquely ill-disposed. And of course, the difference between midterm elections and, and presidential elections is the parties are at parity now maybe they won't be maybe this will this history speeding up thing will happen much faster and will have the effect on the democrats that certain things had the effect on democrats in the 70s and 80s you know it, it, very much the same issues not to get decadent you know runaway inflation rising crime and um you know uh, uh humiliation abroad humiliation abroad exactly and then you have you all you put them all together and you have the democratic party crashing and the only thing that protects it is the entropic rules of the house that you know basically kept remained allowed incumbency to remain you know democrats remained in control of the the house until 1994 40 years uninterrupted control of the house while almost everything else in the country shifted five to ten degrees in the republican direction uh, maybe that could happen now but i'm just saying that uh, i don't think that uh, but you have to look at 2024 and assume that it's going to be a close run thing no matter how it happens because that's what every election has been except for 2008 really and uh and since 1996 and and you're then going to look at this and say 
somebody else could be the steward of this message and some it, as i almost anybody else would be a better steward of this message than trump would be but republicans will have what republicans want you know it's not for me to you know there is no republic there are just people who vote republican and they'll vote for who they vote for and we never get what we want that's we never get what we want we never get what we want which means that's right we're in trouble that's right we never get what we want that's why you listen to us (laughs) the crushing morosity continues Matt Connetti, thank you so much for being with us again. We'll be back with you tomorrow for Abe Christine and Noah and John Pot Well, excuse me, for Abe Christine, the absent Noah. I'm John Pot Keep the camera burning.